Would you join me in a word of prayer? And I'm going to pray a variation of an old Puritan prayer that I often pray silently to myself before I come up. And I'm just going to let you all join in with it this morning. Father, your servant is called to preach today, but I go unworthy and ill-prepared to the task. And yet for the sake of your glory and your body's edification and the proclamation of the gospel, would your spirit grant unction that your word might be taught accurately, clearly, and compellingly. We thank you for the chance to assemble this morning. We pray for your grace upon us. We know that some are ill, some are traveling. We pray for those who are absent. We long for the day when we will be a full complement of Christians assembled together as your church. And thank you for the privilege of singing your praise, lifting our prayers, and now attending to your word. Open our minds to understand it, our hearts to receive it, our wills to apply it, we ask in your son's name. Amen. Well, special congratulations to our graduates. Uh, we had originally intended to honor them today, but so many were traveling today that we're going to be doing that next week. Uh, for those of you who are going to be heading off to college, you are about to be bombarded with the same basic battery of questions. Where are you from? What are you studying? What are you going to do? They're the same three questions that we were asked. For those of you graduating college, you'll begin to be bombarded with, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What do you do? It's just a certain things that we do to begin to differentiate people. So we're all on the same college campus, but I'm trying to distinguish you and differentiate you from all the other collegiates. Or we're in the same workplace, we're in the same stage of life, and I'm trying to individualize you and particularize you from everyone else that we're working with. And that's okay, but it makes us sometimes forget all that we have in common. That if you're on a college campus, then you are a high school graduate, you're either a U.S. citizen or here on a student visa, and you have the academic ability and accomplishments to show that you can finish college. And what you have in common is very important in the way that you view yourself and the way that you view and treat others. That when you meet people who are better than you in a particular area, you shouldn't belittle yourself because you belong there. You're a collegiate just like they are. And when you encounter someone that maybe you're a little bit better in a particular area than they are, you shouldn't feel proud of yourself or belittle them because they too have so many things in common that they share. Well, what we've been doing this month in May is talking about what do we all share in common as human beings? What is the biblical basis for our personal identities that everyone around you, everyone you'll meet today, everyone whom you will cross paths with or see or read about have certain basic features in common that should determine how we view them and how we treat them? We've looked at six so far. The first of all, we are created. There is no one who is eternal. There is no one who made themselves Everyone is created by God and therefore we were all created to worship Him and to submit to Him. And everyone that you see is a special creation of God Almighty. We were created male or female. God assigns us our gender at conception and we are to embrace that gender and live accordingly. God made us in His image that we relate to Him uniquely, that we represent Him in a special way so that we can represent him faithfully as his servants, as we reproduce and rule the earth on his behalf as his vice regents. Then last week, we looked how God forms each one of us in the mother's womb, that you are a handmade, personal masterwork of God Almighty. You're not a clone. You're not a duplicate. You didn't roll off assembly line. He doesn't mass produce. You have no doppelganger. You are the unique you that God made you to be. And whatever, whether that's a fleet Fred 
or a strong Bill or a follically challenged John, that came from God's will because He makes each one of us in our mother's womb. We are embodied souls that He breathed into Adam the breath of life. And that distinguishes us from the animals. And so we care for our bodies, but we should also care for our souls. And we are agents. We're not determined by our biology. We're not determined by our environment. We're not determined by anything. These are influences. But we have will. We have agency that God honors us with. He tells us what to do and gives us the freedom to obey or disobey. And then He honors us with the dignity of holding us responsible for our choices. And everyone you meet has these same six basic characteristics. Well, today we want to look at the end of Genesis 2. And again, we're going back to the book of Genesis, back to the beginning, as we rolled off the original assembly floor before we fell and now our identity got tainted. We'll talk about God's restoration of that identity next week. But today we want to talk about our identity as human beings as social, sexual complements. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Genesis chapter 2 where we will begin in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now this is the 12th time in the book of Genesis so far that we have seen the word good used. That when God makes something, declares something, brings something into existence, He judges it and affirms it. So He made the light and it was good. The seas and the dry land were good. The vegetation, the sun, the moon, the fish, the fowl, the beasts, the cattle, the creeping things, all were good. Then on the seventh day, God stepped back and said, it is very good. In Genesis 2, the trees were good for, for, uh, good for food. He made gold as a beautiful, malleable metal that Adam could craft into beautiful objects. And that was good. And then he planted a particular tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good, so that by obeying God, we would confirm that goodness and never learn the evil by experience that he did not want us to experience. But now we see something not good, that the man was alone. Now from Adam's perspective, things must have seemed pretty good. Adam had the ultimate man cave. It wasn't a cave. It was a perfect orchard in a perfectly lush environment with lots of dogs and domesticated animals. Depending on your flavor, there may or may not have been cats. But Adam was in this glorious estate in personal fellowship with God. And that would have been good for Adam. And truth be known, that's the good that many of us are seeking. That our desire is to get our own home, our own apartment. And then we get this thing called a garage door that we can raise and lower like the portcullis on a castle. And every so often we emerge in our social isolation bubble to go to work or to go on an errand. But then we have our earbuds in so that we can live our life to our personalized soundtracks. And then we go back in our social isolation bubble. The portcullis comes up, we go back in, and we don't have to see or deal with another human being if we don't care to. And it's getting even better. Now we can work from home, we can have our food and our groceries and our meals ordered in so that we don't have to leave, and we can create our own personalized entertainment universe, and it's getting even better. Now we're getting a virtual reality multiverse, or not multiverse, metaverse, thank you. Sorry, I just saw a Marvel movie with my son. Uh, a metaverse where now we can create our own world, create our own identity, and never have to deal with another human being at all. It's going to be marvelous, almost like the matrix, but it's not God's will for us. And the same is true in the church world. I worked with a pastor once who said he dreamed of planning a church someday called No People Bible Church. <laughs> and their motto was going to be, we don't want you or your problems. 
but there was going to be a post office box so that you could mail in your tithe. And the reality is that many churchgoers want a no people Bible church as well. And you can now go online and become an online member of an online church. You create your avatar and you can personalize your worship experience so that when you decide to go to church electronically, as you desire to express yourself, that you can personalize the soundtrack, whether you like classic hymns or contemporary praise songs, you can stand, you can raise your arms, you can make the figure move and leave, and no one else has to know your real identity. It's perfect, except it's not God's will for us. God made us to be social. God made us to live in community because God exists as an eternal community. God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit living forever in perfect fellowship and community. And when he makes us in his image, remember even in Genesis 1 when he made man, it said male and female he made them because there was never a desire to be a unique man like a unique God. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, it was not good for God to be alone. God exists as a trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and when they make man and woman in their image, it is for the purpose of forming marriages and forming families that then become clans and tribes and cultures and societies and nations and empires. We are intended to live in fellowship with one another. The goal of life should not be to live in gloriously isolated independence so that no one else can bother us and we don't have to be bothered with other people. That may be Americans' goal in life, that is not God's goal or intent for your life. We are social beings. And that is especially true of Christians. When God saves us as an individual, He simultaneously baptizes us into the body of Christ. So when my son, Michael, was born, he was born into a family. So we didn't have twins, we didn't have triplets, we didn't have quadruplets. He was born as a single child, but he was born into a family. And as we wheeled him out of the delivery room, there was a clan of Browns with their faces pressed against the glass of the viewing room. Because he was instantly not only a son, but a brother, and a grandson, and a nephew, and a cousin, and on and on and on. Michael was born into a web of relationships in which he was intended to live his life. Because that's the way God made us to be. Every Christian who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ has a corporate relationship with the body of Christ. Let me say that again. Every Christian that has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ has a corporate relationship with the body of Christ. If you are an adopted child or son or daughter of God, you are not an only child. You have spiritual siblings. And God expects you to live your life in community. We are born biologically to live into families and extended families and part of communities, and we are born spiritually to live in a nuclear family of a local church and then in the extended family of the body of Christ around the globe. But at no point is it simply you and Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, then you're part of his body, which means there are other body parts that are relying on you and that you were made to depend on. And I know that this is hard for some of you, because I, too, am an introvert, a hermit by nature, so solitude is my natural habitat, and I know this isn't easy for us to embrace. Uh, when I graduated college, my dad's graduation gift to me was he rented me a car, I filled the uh, trunk with books, and then I went to go spend two and a half weeks of glorious solitude alone in New Mexico and Colorado. 
I was as happy and solitary as an oyster. Uh, that's just who I was. Uh, my brother went into a coffee shop one time and there was a guy sitting in the back corner with his back to the rest of the room, headphones on, books around him. Every visual signal he could send was, leave me alone. And on the back of his shirt it said, do I look like a people person? <laughs> and he said, it's all I could do to not go try to buy the shirt off the guy's back for you. Because I am not a people person. But when I became a Christian, I knew that I had to be. And that it was not God's will for me to live in solitude, in exclusion, in isolation. And so I bought Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, I made myself go to social events. Uh, I began working very hard to become a more socially adept person. Uh, my wife will tell you in the early days of marriage, there were times at parties that she would come grab me out of an empty bedroom where I was doing scripture memory because that was easy, but people were hard. Uh, there was a time with a student wives in ministry Bible study at Dallas Seminary that all the wives wanted the husbands to get together and they were all playing Frisbee and chatting and I was sharing the gospel with a homeless person because that was easy, but chit chat was hard. But I worked at it because I knew that was not God's will for me. And so I prayed, I worked, I continued to do the faithful thing even when it was a hard thing. And over time, God made me less socially awkward. And then he made me more socially adept. And then he made me begin to value and appreciate the community of Christ. And I'll tell you now that one of the highlights of my week is to see the saints assemble on a Sunday or Wednesday. Uh, most times I can't restrain myself to wait in here for y'all to enter. I'm out in the parking lot. I can't wait to see you drive up. I'm already anticipating the cars driving from all directions, the people walking in all directions. And I love the family of God. I had become passionate about the body of Christ, but I didn't start that way. I went that way because I knew it was God's will for me. And then I enjoyed the blessings that God intends for us in the body of Christ. So I know this is hard. I know this is against what we're trying to create as an American ideal. But know that it is God's will for your life that you live in community. That's true for your family. That's true in the community at large. And it is especially true for the community of Christ. When we are born again, we are born again into a family of God. When we are in heaven someday, it will not be simply you and Jesus. It will be you and Jesus and all the communion of saints. The brief glimpses we get into heaven are the martyrs praying together or the saints singing together in a celestial choir. What we don't find are a bunch of people in isolation chambers. That's not heaven. That wasn't even Eden. Not at least as God intended it. So let me just say several things uh, on this point before we move on. First of all, biblically, God intends for you to live your life in community. It was not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for you to be alone. If that's uncomfortable, realize that it's not optional. <laughs> it's obligatory. And like every other obligation of God, you will find blessing in obedience. Scripturally, God's church manifests God's glory as a community. God is a trinity who works in harmony with one another. We, as the creation of the trinity, are to work in harmony with one another. And that's to demonstrate something to the world. That's part of our gospel testimony to the world. How can y'all be so diverse and yet so united? How can y'all be so different and yet so loving? How can y'all be so distinct and yet all together as part of the same family? And our passion is that the PhDs and the GEDs are right next to each other in the same seats because we're all one at the foot of the cross. Male and female, black and white, old and young, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, 
We are all children of God, and God wants us to live in harmonious, loving, holy fellowship with one another, which is part of our gospel testimony to this fractured, contentious, divisive, isolated world. Practically, living in isolation is not healthy. And if there were any doubts on this, we just did a global pandemic experience. Uh, I was talking to some parents who took their children to a park, and one of their kids asked another child if they wanted to come play with them, and the child let out a scream and ran in the other direction. And a parent next to them said, COVID kid, (laughs) which is funny, but it's not. The rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, self-harm are off the charts. We don't even know the extent of the damage that that forced isolation experiment put on us. We were not tended to live in isolation. Uh, If you look at Howard Hughes, that didn't turn out well. What did the billionaire do with his billions? He lived the life of perfect isolation and it just made him weird. His hair grew out, his nails grew out, and he grew more bizarre the longer he stayed alone. If you look at Tom Hanks' character in Castaway or Will Smith in I Am Legend, isolation is desirable, but it's not our normal estate and it's not what we're intended to be. People get bizarre when you get alone. We're intended to live in company where people can come on us and say, brother, you're acting a little bit weird or can I help you more like Jesus in this way? So I was walking down a hallway this morning and a dear brother just kind of did this with his uh, pinky. And I knew immediately, dang, I came with toothpaste on my mouth. And I would have gone the whole day with this big glob of toothpaste on my mouth had someone not loved me enough to say, brother, that's a bit bizarre. And we all need that because we need each other in these various ways. May I tell you, pastorally, people who seclude themselves fall into sin, are more susceptible to sin, and sometimes seclude themselves in order to sin. This is what Proverbs 18.1 says. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. How did the devil deceive Eve when she was alone? When did David fall into adultery? When he was alone. When Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, wouldn't it have been much more efficient to send them in 12 different directions? You could have covered twice the ground. But he didn't do that, did he? He paired them up. Paul and Barnabas, when Antioch sent them out, they could have covered more ground separately. You go east, I'll go west, and we'll double the churches. There's souls at stake. God didn't do that. He sent them out as a pair. We need each other. And we're foolish to think that we won't fall into sin if we live in isolation. And finally, personally, may I just tell you that your brothers and sisters miss you? I know that there are some who are absent because for medical reasons, they need to be absent. We understand that. We grieve with that. But I also know that there are people who in COVID have found a good excuse to remove themselves from gathering with the saints, and that's unacceptable. Um, If your health condition does not permit you to be with other people, we grieve. You're still part of the family. We want to come visit, even if I'm standing across the lawn to come talk to you. But when that health threat is no longer there or no longer is dire, God's will for you is to regather, to return, to reassemble, because we are intended to gather as God's children regularly.
That's what we do as Christians. That's who we are. That's why when we entered into the COVID that none of us knew what that was going to be, one of the things that we explained was our basic impulse as Christians is to gather. And there may come a time when medical necessity or love for neighbor or submission to governing authority means we can't in the normal form, but our normal impulse is always to gather. It's always centripetal. It's always to congregate. The early church did that even when it was dangerous to do so. Even when there was Roman persecution against them, if they had to meet in the catacombs at risk to their life, they still did it because that's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. Secondly, God makes us sexual. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God's initial plan to make a social was to take a man, then a woman, to wed them as a husband and wife, from which would come children, and then those children would grow up to take a husband or a wife, they would form their own families, then the family would become an extended family that would become a clan, would become a tribe, would become a community, would become a culture. That was God's plan for us. But first he makes Adam's real need a felt need. And he does this by parading before him in pairs the animals for him to name. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So you can imagine Adam standing there, and here comes the animals in pairs. Deer, stag and doe, sheep, ram and ewe, hippo, Bull and cow, goat, billy and nanny, horse, stallion and mare, pig, boar and sow, chick, rooster and hen, hare, jack and jill. And what gets drummed into him time and time again is, hey, what about me? <laughs> and I don't want to be Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> it's not enough for me to walk and talk with the animals. What about me? And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the men. And he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And in the immortal words of the commentator Matthew Henry, God took him not out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor from his feet to be trampled on upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, close to his heart to be beloved. Isn't that great? He had taken her from the man. He brought her to him. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are the first recorded words of Adam. And they're poetic. In the Hebrew, it's a poetic structure. And it's related that from Ish, man would come Isha, woman, because there is a close connection between the two. So close as a rib from a body. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was complete vulnerability. There was complete transparency because there was no threat or fear of harm, of ridicule, of no insecurity, no anxiety. And in verse 24, God is giving us a commentary on what he did in verses 21 through 23, that he is instituting a new covenant, marriage, in order to form families out of which are going to come kids, from which will come future families, etc. And they are going to be one flesh in at least two senses. One is, now this man and this woman are going to be a unit. And they're going to make every decision from there on as a unit. 
So on Friday, I was at uh, Denton Calvary Academy watching my nephew Drew graduate high school. And looking up there on that stage on that happy family occasion, my mind went back to May 28, 1994, when my wife and I stood on that stage and became husband and wife. You were there with me. My best man's in the room. Uh, we entered separately. So I came in from the side, she came in from the back, but when we stood up there in the eyes of God and man and swore to become husband and wife, we left a unit. And that's why she took my last name. Not Kim Brown, or not Kim No became not Kim Brown because she was now taking on my identity and from henceforth, we're a unit. Every decision we make is now as a unit. Bachelor John died and husband John was born. Bachelorette Knock died and wife Knock was born. And we had to learn to figure out, there's a couple here celebrating their 50th anniversary. And it's a wonderful, beautiful challenge that God lets us do. But everything we do is as a unit because we're one flesh. It's an identity. And we do everything together and for each other. But also in a sexual sense, God made us as husband and wife to reproduce so that he could populate the earth so that we could rule over the earth as his vice regents. And he didn't have to do it this way. Again, God could have just making more males from the dirt, more females from their rib, on and on and on. God could have cloned us. He could have made us come out like pods of plants. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember the comic strip Dilbert, uh, there's a great Dilbert strip where uh, Dilbert comes up to Wally, the geeky engineer, and Wally says, I've decided to check out of the dating scene and I'm just going to reproduce asexually. And then Wally begins going, divide, divide, divide. And Dilbert just steps away. <laughs> but God didn't make us to divide and reproduce asexually, but sexually. And because God loves us, he gives us parameters to protect us and to channel that drive in ways that are God-honoring and that fulfill his purposes. And because there is so much confusion and current contention and controversy over this issue, I do want to take some time and make clear what the Bible makes exceedingly clear, which is what does the Bible say about sex? And it's very simple and very straightforward. Sex is to be enjoyed exclusively between a husband and a wife within the covenantal confines of a biblically permissible marriage. Let me say that again. Sex is to be enjoyed exclusively between, and now we have to add the words, a male husband and a female wife within the covenantal confines of a biblically permissible marriage. Anything outside of this is prohibited by God. That can be incest, that can be premarital sex, that can be adultery, that can be homosexuality, that can be a number of things that we're going to look at because that's the day and age in which we live. So let's look at the very clear passages on this, and then we'll unpack how do we respond to our world around this. Here are some of the sexual relations and activities forbidden by God in the Bible. And again, my goal here, as one who believes the Bible is the inspired authoritative word of God, speaking to others, the majority of whom at least believe the Bible is the inspired authoritative word of God, is to be very clear on what God's inspired and authoritative word says. Once we're clear on it, we can better communicate it to others, both the what and the why. In Leviticus 18.6, God says, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. So incest is prohibited. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not the same as physical adultery, but it's not permissible. I heard a married man say once, I can look, I just can't touch. No, that's not permissible in God's eyes because you are committing infidelity in your heart, which often then leads to physical infidelity. So pornography is prohibited. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, we don't hear the word fornication much, but it's the biblical word for sexual immorality of any kind. But in a very specific sense, it refers to premarital sex. So infidelity would be the adulterers here. Fornication would be not just among married people, but people who aren't married. That's also prohibited. Moving now to another couple of texts. Leviticus 18 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. You shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. Bestiality. It is a perversion. In Romans, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It's not an orientation, an inclination, or a choice to celebrate and endorse. It's something that God says is indecent and that He will judge. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. And that's not referring to someone who likes art versus hunting. This isn't Jacob versus Esau. This is someone who is the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers were inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he said to the Corinthians, that were notorious for their sexual morality. So Corinth was the New Orleans, the San Francisco, the Las Vegas of that day and age. And that's who they used to be. But did that mean they were outside the grace of God? By no means. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set aside as holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. No matter what sexual sin one has fallen into, what one distortion one has embraced, there is hope in Christ for forgiveness, for cleansing, and a fresh start. No one is beyond that. And we have all committed sexual sins of one kind or another. Now, the sexual revolution began in 1960 when the FDA approved the first commercially produced oral contraceptive. And the first biblical boundary to be intentionally breached by the sexual revolution was premarital sex. But for the last 30 years, and especially since the Supreme Court decision with Obergefell, the very intentional, deliberate biblical boundary that is intended to be breached is homosexuality. And so we're going to spend a little time talking about that. Uh, June is LGBTQ plus Pride Month. Uh, Disney in preparation for this just announced their new line of pride clothing from uh, baby wear to t-shirts to backpacks. There is now a whole Disney line promoting this. So what's our response to this as Christians? The same as our response to any issue, especially controversial ones. We respond biblically, reasonably, and lovingly.
So let's talk through that. Biblically, the Bible is very clear on homosexuality. It is prohibited and it is condemned. Every single occurrence of the word, every single description of it, even in passages like Sodom and Gomorrah, it is not something that is permissible, much less something to take pride in and celebrate. And so we can't celebrate Gay Pride Month any more so that I could celebrate Adultery Month or Incest Month or Trafficking Month. The Bible is the Word of God, and therefore it is true and it is authoritative. We don't get to pick and choose its teachings. We don't get to select which commands we want to modify or reject. We don't get to update it to make it more popular with those around us. It is God's Word for us, and we would not want to do any of those things because we know that God is a good God and His Word reveals His best for us. That true personal flourishing and societal thriving come from obedience to God. And the Bible is unmistakably clear on this point. There is no controversy unless one just tries to speciously manufacture arguments. It's very, very clear on what it says. Secondly, we respond reasonably. It's reasonable to relate sexuality with reproduction. If you were Mort from Morrison, if that means anything, if you were an alien coming down and just looking at human anatomy, you would know that the male and the female of the species were intended to come together for the purpose of reproduction. It's reasonable to affirm that, as every culture in human history has done. Refusing to support homosexuality doesn't make us homophobic. A phobia is an irrational fear. We don't have an irrational fear of sameness, not even of same-sexness. We're not afraid. It's not irrational. We have a biblical, rational, historically, biologically opposition to something that is not good for those people or for a society that embraces it. Uh, for those of you who know Monty Python and the Holy Grail, remember the knights who said knee? Knee, knee, and they fly, frightened away. Just because someone says homophobe, well, we could just say, well, you're Christophobic or you're bibliophobic. But it's not irrational to have a very biblical reason, biological, historical, socially justified opposition to something that has proven itself harmful. It is unreasonable to say that all sexual urges are self-authenticating and should be indulged and celebrated because that would approve pedophilia. And we know that's wrong. It is unreasonable to say that love, that love condones or even necessitates all expressions of that love. If they love one another, they should be able to express it however they want because that would condone incest, which we know is wrong. There is no scientific evidence supporting the idea that one is born gay. Despite decades of desperate searching, there is no scientific evidence of a gay gene or of anything that indicates someone is just born that way. It's counter to evolutionary sins if one holds to an evolutionary theory because it doesn't lead to the reproduction and the survival of the species. By its very nature, it doesn't allow for reproduction. And it is unreasonable for non-Christians to accuse us of bigotry and bias and to insist that we deny our faith, compromise our convictions, ignore anatomy and physio physiology, and endorse a sexual ethic that doesn't limit itself on where it goes. That's unreasonable. And thirdly, we respond lovingly because these are men and women made in the image of God. God loves them enough to make them. God loves everyone enough for his sin to son to die for them. So how do I treat them? Lovingly. What's my heart for them? Just their best. Biblical love is to desire, is to genuinely desire the genuine well-being of another 
and to be willing to selflessly and sacrificially try to promote that. And the genuine well-being of another is always to obey God. It is always loving to encourage people to trust and obey God. When we raised our children to not engage in premarital sex, that was a loving teaching. When I go to a husband or a wife and appeal to them not to fall into adultery or to abandon it, that is a loving act. When we ask people to turn off pornography, that is a loving act. It is always loving to encourage people to trust and obey God. Because one, that's what's going to lead to true flourishing in this life, but also they will stand before God someday. And I don't want them to be judged for anything that he says is a violation of his law. Now, I was in Spain one time and I parked in this parking spot to go see a museum and a person came up and said, uh, you're not allowed to park there. I said, well, well, there's no sign. And they said, yeah, but you're not allowed to park there. They'll tell you. Well, what was my response to that? Did I say, how dare you judge me? How dare you self-righteously be so intolerant as to tell me where I can park? Did I say you're an anglophobe because you think Americans can't know where to park? Did I ignore it and to say, ah, I don't care what you think? I very gratefully took in the knowledge that someone had of a law that I was unaware of and it spared me being towed and trying to somehow get my car out of an impound lot in Spain. I don't even want to go down that road, but that would have been like. It was loving of them to tell me, did you realize you're in violation of the law? And my proper response was, thank you. I didn't know that. And now that I know it, I'm going to try to obey it. We acknowledge that we are sinners just like everybody else. And we are guilty of sexual sins as well. This isn't self-righteousness. This isn't smugness. This isn't arrogance. This isn't a snubbing, a shaming, and excluding. Our desire is to offer them the same forgiveness in Jesus Christ that we've received. And a God who will accept anybody who will accept his son. And then to help them walk in obedience because that's going to lead to the best life God has for them. So everyone is welcome. And everyone that wants Jesus is going to be embraced into the family. And for those who are suffering because of bad choices made or things inflicted on them, we have nothing but compassion and mercy and grace and love. So there is no place for hate, for spite, for snubbing, for shaming, but we do have to speak biblical truth reasonably in love because that's what we're called to do for everybody on every issue. For help on this very controversial issue, let me recommend five resources among an abundance. Uh, the authoritative work on all things related to homosexuality in the Bible and the ancient Near East is by a gentleman named Robert Gagnon. This is the standard work. It is exhaustive. It is thorough. It is clear. It's, it's a wonderful resource for those who need to dig in depth. Uh, Kevin DeYoung is a reformed pastor who just has a gift for thinking and writing very clearly. It's biblical, it's reasonable, it's lucid, it's concise. This would be my first book to recommend on the subject for those of you who care and need to read on this subject. Two others that deal more not just with the practice of it, but, but what about attraction? And what do we do with those who just feel inclined a particular way? Uh, Denny Burke is the head of the uh, Christian Biblical Council of, the Council of Biblical Manhood Womanhood, uh, cbmw.org. He's a godly man who writes very lovingly and clearly on this subject. And then the final one, Christopher Yuan uh, was a dentist who chose to dive into the homosexual lifestyle that took him into darker and darker places where he eventually found himself in prison. 
During that time, he came to Christ, and now he is a professor at Moody Bible College. And he writes on the issue as an insider with just wonderful expressions of empathy and hope for those who have found themselves in a particular lifestyle. And his emphasis is, God doesn't call you to be heterosexual. He calls you to be male or female, and you know that by the body he gives you. And if you are male, you were made to unite sexually with females. If you're female, you were made to unite physically with males. But what God calls us to is a holy sexuality. And for many people who are called to be single, that's going to be chastity. That's going to be celibacy. But we're called to purity. And we're all called to that. And we all struggle with that in various ways. And so let's prayerfully help one another in that regard. And then finally, there's a ministry in Arlington called Living Hope. Uh, some of you all have been involved in that. A very wonderful gentleman named uh, Ricky Shillette, who also was in that lifestyle for a number of years, has now been ministering to those in that lifestyle for a number of years. And this is help close at hand. And we've had him come in and speak to our church, and he's available to speak to those of you who want to. And this is just a very wonderful expert resource that's close at hand, able and willing to help any way that he can. Finally, God makes us social and sexual beings in order to complement one another. None of us are intended to live in independent isolation. We need one another. Men need women and women need men. Old need young and young need old. We are intended to come together as this beautiful, harmonious, complementary creation of the body of Christ that is an organism that weeps with those who weeps and rejoices with those who rejoice. And I use my gifts to help you where your weaknesses complement them. You use your gifts to complement my weaknesses. And together we manifest the glories of the triune God together. And so, how do we view ourselves and others? We are created by God. We are created male or female by God. And we are created male or female in God's image, which means the most irritating, aggravating person in your life still bears God's image and you are to love them and you are to treat them with dignity and respect. We are formed by God individually. So whatever aspects of yourself bother you about yourself, God made you that way. And it's okay to love yourself and accept the artwork that you are. We are embodied souls. We care for our bodies and our souls. We are responsible agents. God reveals his will to us and we are able to freely respond or reject it, and we are held culpable for those decisions. So choose wisely. We are social. We are to live together in communities and families. We are sexual. We are to come together as husband and wife to reproduce, and we complement one another in communities. So how do we view others and treat them? We treat them with dignity and respect. We treat them with righteousness and justice. We treat them with mercy and compassion. And most of all, we treat everyone, even our enemies, with love. We love them enough to speak God's truth to them, biblically, reasonably, and lovingly. We love them enough to welcome all to come to Christ, just as we came to Christ and find forgiveness and a new identity that we'll talk about next week, our identity in Christ. We love them enough to welcome anyone who comes. It doesn't matter how many piercings, how many tattoos, what color they've dyed their hair or their skin. They are a male or female made in God's image and we will love them and we will treat them with dignity and respect. If they want to join God's family, then we welcome them into the family. We didn't choose our siblings. We don't get to choose our spiritual siblings. God our Father makes that choice. We love them enough to help them become more like Jesus and we love others enough to let them make me and you become more like Jesus. We love them enough to help them love God, one another, and others because this is what we do. This is what humans do. 
This is what those made in the image of a God who is love do. We love. Would you pray with me? Father, we are living in a day that does not want to hear what you have to say. Uh, We see censorship. We see cancellation of individuals. We see bullying. We see uh, heresy (laughs) being enforced. We see the, the refusal to hear what you have been saying clearly since you inspired these words. And so we pray for the courage and the boldness to stand firm for the conviction to not compromise, for the loving courage to continue to speak truth even to those who don't want to hear it, who will persecute us and punish us for trying to speak it. Help us to love others enough to speak your truth in love, just like others loved us enough to speak that same truth. And would your spirit open minds to receive it, hearts to embrace it, wills to obey it, but let it start with us. Let us be holy. Let us be loving. Let us be compassionate, accepting. Let us model what you intend to instill on the earth someday, that we might better represent you and better serve you where you place us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.